Here's everything you might have missed in Andor Episode 12. Welcome back, Cassian Fandors, to our weekly breakdown of Andor. The season finale cements Andor as not only one of the best Star Wars stories, but one of the best TV shows of the year. We're gonna break it all down for you in just a moment, but to do so, we have to spoil the Andor season one finale. So if you haven't seen it yet, now's your chance to leave before you get in too deep. You always say that. And you always come through. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? Andor episode 12, titled Rick's Road, is the perfect culmination for a season's worth of slow burn storytelling. Although there are a few mysteries that will linger into season two, like what happened to Cassian's sister, this episode is a case study in being worth the wait. From the way it expertly uses music to build dramatic tension, to the claustrophobic cinematography to make us feel the growing paranoia of the crowd, to its explosive climax, Andor season one finale is about as good as it gets. As night falls on Ferrix, Wilman Pock solders together explosives in his father's old shop. He was radicalized after the Empire tortured and executed his dad during their hunt for Cassian and Axis. It's harrowing to see this talented young man pour his grief into building something so destructive while a hologram of his dead father looks on impassively. Zanwan accidentally spills the space beans about Cassian's impending return in front of Nurchi, who you may recall from the very first episode. Cassian owed Nurchi money, then humiliated him when Nurchi tried to shake him down. He confirms the news by getting Zan nice and liquored up and using the same line that Brasso said earlier on. You know something I don't? Do me a favor, keep it that way. Flanked by death troopers, Dedra Mira arrives in an Imperial Delta shuttle in the dead of night. As we see over the course of this episode, Dedra wants to bait a trap to capture Axis and members of the Rebel Network. Tigo and like everybody else, they'd rather shoot first, ask questions later. Quick side note, is there anybody more suspicious in their plainclothes disguise than Dedra and Korv? I don't think so. Dedra's cheekbones can cut through Beskar steel. Anyway, back on Coruscant, Mon Mothma's baiting a trap of her own. She's suspected from word one that her driver, Chloris, is an ISB plant. Testing her theory, Mon plants a story that her husband Perrin's gambling problem is the real reason for their suspicious banking activity. Mon specifically mentions Canto Bight, the casino planet featured in The Last Jedi as a place that Perrin could debauch discreetly. Now, as far as gambles go, it's an extremely well-played hand by Mon Mothma and one that pays dividends when Chloris snitches to Blevin at the ISB later on. As for Mon's other big gamble, hitching her wagon to Davos Skulden and hitching her daughter Lita to his son, that's a much bigger question mark. It's the most difficult choice Mon has had to make by far because it's the most personal. While Lita is clearly embracing the more fundamentalist traditions of Chandrilla as we saw last week, you can see her smile falter for just a moment here as the gravity of what's actually happening begins to sink in. Now, going back to the ISB for a moment, we learned that for Anto Krieger and his men, everything was not coming up Spellhouse. They fell in the Imperial Trap and they were slaughtered down to a man. Once again, Dedra is pissed that no one was taken in for questioning because they get nothing from dead bodies, unless you're Palpatine, in which case, Snoke parts. The way that Partagas sees it though, this is all about keeping Emperor Palpatine off their backs. We know that Palpatine likes going to the opera, but apparently needs some blood to go along with all that circus. Now, with those other distractions out of the way, we can now firmly fix our attention back on Ferrix because that's where the majority of this episode plays out. As our heroes learn, nothing can ever be like it used to. Vel's relationship with Cinta has been irrevocably changed by their commitment to the rebellion. Vel clearly needs more attention from Cinta, but she's laser focused on getting to Cassian first. 
As for Cassian, his homecoming is the most bittersweet of all. Arriving in the dead of night, he sees his father Clem's funeral brick in the wall. As a reminder, on Ferrix, the custom is to cremate your loved ones and bake them into bricks used to shore up the foundations of their city. Seeing this sends Cassian down memory lane. Just as we saw Clem and Marva scavenging down ships for loot, we see how Clem taught young Cassian how to clean and refurbish ship parts that other people would simply ignore. It's a commentary on how the dueling forces of consumerism and capitalism create a culture of disposability. From people simply buying new ship parts when they break instead of fixing up rusty ones, to the Empire working prisoners to death as a form of slave labor, the effects of this system are pervasive and profound. It's also why the Empire never sees the Rebellion coming. All they see are downtrodden people, they don't look past the proverbial rust. The Rebellion, though, is scrappy and resourceful. Or, to put it in Clem's words... Eyes open, possibilities everywhere. After Cassian reunites with Pegla and learns what happened to Bix, we get one of the most powerful sequences in the episode. Intercut with Bix shivering in her cell, Luthen arriving on the outskirts of Ferrix, and Cassian hunkering down in his old junkyard hideout, we hear the words of Nemec's manifesto. The core thesis of Nemec's manifesto is that though the odds seem impossible, the desire for freedom is stronger. They are not alone, and spontaneous acts of insurrection will pop up all over the galaxy, slowly eroding the Imperial power base. All at will take is one single thing to ultimately break the Empire's authority. Until that day comes, Nemec urges his readers, remember this, try. It's a line that made me pause and write suck on that Yoda in my notes. <clears throat> Not to be glib, but because the rebellion was made possible by normal, everyday people, not just space wizards with laser swords. In effect, what Nemec's really saying is that as long as these pockets, pockets of rebellion keep on fomenting, fomenting change, it will eventually happen. Also, having the growing rain and thunder signify the gathering storm of rebellion, nice touch. Anyway, the next day, certified bean boy Corv is glurping more sweet, sweet calf while staking out Marva's house. The man who emerges, though, isn't Brasso. That big lug is meeting with Cassian in those aforementioned secret tunnels to pass along the first of Marva's posthumous messages. And while this is happening, the world's least dynamic duo decides that the rain wasn't the only thing that should be certified drippy. Cyril and Mosk, Morana One's finest, swap hats for some reason to complete their ensembles as they head to Ferrix to go undercover and stock Dedra and Cassian in equal measure. Luthen, on the other hand, is already making elaborate plans of his own to assassinate Cassian. But what catches all of these off-worlders off guard are the people of Ferrix. The clang of the anvil signals the start of Marva's funeral band to begin marching towards Rick's Road far earlier than expected. Now, for those who don't remember, Rick's Road, the namesake of this episode, is where Cassian's father and Marva's partner Clem was executed by the Empire. He was blamed for his countrymen's actions of hurling stones at clone troopers. It's also where Cassian's first act of rebellion took place as he later attacked the troops in an effort to take his father's body down. This whole procession kind of feels like the galactic version of a jazz funeral. Or to put it in George Lucas's parlance, a jizz funeral. <sighs> you know, I could say I said, but it just feels disrespectful, so I'm sorry. 
This entire sequence is extremely exhilarating as all of these disparate storylines converge in the middle of this sprawling funeral procession. We get so many unique vantage points, Cassian in his sniper's nest watching with the spyglass, Willman blending into the crowd with his homemade explosive, Dedra hunting Cassian, Korv trying to act natural while Cinta tails him, and Cyril and Luthen walking within inches of each other. The music begins on a mournful funeral dirge that bears a striking sonic resemblance to the main Andor theme. And this whole sequence masterfully builds tension with the crescendo from a funeral dirge to fever pitch of brass and chanting of sky and stone. And when the anvil finally clangs again, it feels almost like a countdown clock. It's perhaps the most effective use of sound and music in Star Wars since the complete silence that followed the Holdo maneuver in The Last Jedi. And the scene is punctuated by B2 finally showing us why he's been conserving that power all season long, to project a massive hologram of Marva to deliver her words of wisdom from beyond the grave. As she explains, it's a tradition on Ferex for the dead to lift the living up with their words, their truth. But Marva's truth is an uncomfortable one. She says the quiet part as loud as humanly possible. She calls the Empire a disease that thrives in darkness and urges her fellow Phyrexians to fight the Empire in the most full-throated call to rebellion we've seen on this show. Even Luthen has to give it up, he's pretty impressed. It's also a validation of Leia's words from A New Hope about how the more the Empire tightens its grip, the more star systems will slip through their fingers. To be honest, the Empire probably could have avoided some bloodshed that follows if Tigo hadn't freaked out and tried to cover B2's projection. I don't know about you, but I audibly gasped when he tipped over B2 and Brasso responded by Sparta kicking him. It also absolutely whips that Brasso beat someone down with Marva's cremation brick because that way she got to fight the Empire from beyond the grave. It's so good, it's so good. This act of anger quickly escalates into a full-scale riot with Imperial jackboots clashing with citizens. Cassian takes advantage of the confusion to elude capture by the ISB and use those secret tunnels that Marva mentioned to go and rescue Bix. Unfortunately for Cassian, Bix is too broken by this point, too fearful to leave of her own accord. It takes a massive explosion from Wilman's homemade pipe bomb, igniting a cache of Imperial ordnance to finally get her to cooperate. The chaos of the riot creates a massive body count with characters like Zanwan, Nurchi, and even poor unsuspecting daughters of Ferex getting caught in the crossfire. Although in Nurchi's case, that snitch is well beyond stitches. As for Korv, he gets a good old-fashioned shanking from Cinta in one of the most badass moments of the episode. See you in space hell, fascist! One of the most effective and chilling moments of this episode is seeing Dedra narrowly escape being swarmed by Phyrexian citizens, only to be foe kidnapped by Cyril. It so clearly illustrates the field experience that Dedra lacks as an ISB analyst. On the one hand, you never want to see the ISB elude justice, but also what Cyril does is incredibly creepy. Yes, he saved her from a sure-to-be-gruesome death, but he's also like a few steps away from wearing her skin as a suit. And we all know, he loves wearing suits. Have you modified your uniform? Perhaps slightly. Pockets piping and, and some light tailoring. But Dedra isn't the only one who flees to safety. Cassian manages to safely escort Bix to the airfield so she can get off world with Brasso, Pegla, Jezzy, and a heartbroken B2. I never got to see you. Fingers crossed that season two involves a plot line where Cassian actually does track them all down, because honestly, I can't bear the thought of poor little depressed B2 never seeing him again. 
For now though, Cassian remains behind because he has some unfinished business with the man who first recruited him to do more than just be a self-interested smuggler, Luthen. Luthen tries to get the hell out of Space Dodge only to find Cassian waiting inside his ship. And for a moment, you think that Cassian might actually be there to take him out because he correctly sussed out why Luthen was there acting so sus. But no, like Nemec and Marva, Cassian is ready to die for something bigger than himself. Whether it's simply to keep his friends safe or to, as Marva puts it, be an unstoppable force for good. At first, Luthen is rightfully stunned, but then he can't help but smile at this crazy bastard in front of him. Because deep down, Luthen knows he just added the greatest recruit he could have ever asked for. And though the Empire clearly knows who Cassian is, they'll still never see Axis coming in Season 2, especially because they have a man on the inside who is never, ever getting out. And last but not least, Andor has a post-credit scene for the very first time that confirms what many fans suspected. Those cogs the prisoners of Narkina 5 were building ad nauseum are, in fact, components for the Death Star. And to make things even bleaker, they're being used in the construction of the Death Star's super laser. It's the very weapon that one day sends Cassian into the suite hereafter on the shores of Scarif. Anyway, folks, there you have it. That's everything we spotted and want to delve deeper into in the Andor finale. I still can't get over just how good this show is, especially considering how cynical I felt when it was first announced. To have a show this adept at illustrating the roots of rebellion and the casual cruelty of life under the Empire, it makes other Star Wars stories even better. Anyway, if you want to go even deeper into the finale, make sure you check out Michael Walsh's interview with series creator Tony Gilroy over on Nerdist. In the meantime, though, tell us what did you think of the Andor finale? Did you find anything that we missed? I'll find you. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.